Okay. So, Alan, welcome. I'm glad you're here. Thank and you. This is your first call, and we've been chatting for about 20 minutes already. And so we've turned the video recorder on uh, to go back and review some of this stuff. But the first question that I ask you is, what do you mean by the word vipassana? So when I think of the word vipassana, I think of it as a sort of method of inquiry uh, into uh, mind states, uh, you know, into anything that causes suffering, you know. Um, it's an investigation. That's, that's sort of how I think of it. Trying to be in, in a moment of bare awareness. What are the sensations that are occurring in the body? Uh, what are the uh, mind states that are arising and passing? And um, how how is how am I reacting to them? Okay, all right. Let's talk about vipassana in this regard. Rather than seeing Vipassana as a method, let's see it as the result of good practice. The Vipassana is not a, um, a practice in and of itself. It's the result of what you see. It's almost like that you go to the zoo and you see a tiger or an elephant. And most people think that Vipassana is getting to the zoo, going to the zoo, traveling in the zoo, and none of that is Vipassana. What's actually Vipassana is gazing eyes on that elephant, and you mm. see the elephant. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so what we need to do is to talk about how do we get into the zoo. <laughs> Rather than what are we going to look at when we see it? Mm -hmm. Okay, so the next point that you made, uh, which I'd like to actually point out, interestingly enough, is a contradiction uh, in the sense of seeing dukkha and, and investigating mental states and things like this is actually much closer to what they call the, uh, the Mahasi method, and they use the word Vipassana. And um, it basically is, is based on noting, in the sense of noting various mental conditions. Okay. Yep. I mean, that, that's essentially what I'm doing. I'm doing noting. Right. This is not what the Buddha taught. <laughs> the Buddha taught only one kind of meditation. He taught Anapanasati. Mm -hmm. And he taught Anapanasati as a method for the fulfillment of the Satipatthana. And yet most of the Western meditation systems goes all about the Satipatthana and everything that's associated with it without understanding that there is something else that goes along with it, that these two things are partners. Mm -hmm. 
and that if we go for Vipassana or uh, the Satipatthana, the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, without the Anapanasati practice, then we're really, really missing something. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, it's, it's almost like... Uh, it's almost like jamming on the brakes and holding the brakes down for all your might on a car that you're trying to get started and rolling. And so no matter how much you gun it, you're just going to make a bunch of smoke because you've got your feet hard on the brakes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, what we mean by that hard on the brakes is, is that if you're noting dukkha, then you're in it. Right. What Anapanasati practice is, is to note it and to get out of it immediately. Mm-hmm. Once you recognize that you've got your foot on the brake, you need to, <laughs> need to take your foot off the brake. And now you can go. And this is the place that most meditation students are in. So let's uh, use a little bit more classical language for a moment. And that is, is that the Buddha said that there are various things that give us gratification. Sensual desires, getting drunk, stoned, working for a living, all of these kind of things we see the gratification in, and our society has been working very hard to try to teach every individual member of our society all of these gratifications. Right? But the Buddha says that we have to see also the dangers. And if we can see the gratification and the danger, then we can plot our escape. If we can get our escape, we can get out of it. Mm -hmm. Okay. And this is something that is uh, noticeably missing in the Vipassana method. They keep saying, just keep looking, keep noting. Keep dukkha, 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 dukkha. And that's not what the Buddha taught. The Buddha didn't teach dukkha, 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 look at the dukkha, have some more dukkha, investigate it, dukkha, have some vipassana about dukkha. Go really, really deep into the dukkha, and maybe you even get so far down into dukkha that you'll have a dark night of the soul. Dukkha, 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 right? That's the way, and they want you to see the dukkha. But the Buddha says, no, that we have to see the danger in the dukkha in order to plot our escape, to get out of it. Okay? And that uh, this is where Anapanasati uh, really shines. Now, um, to go back uh, a, a bit, the entire teachings of the Buddha is very simple. Even though mostly it's delivered to students unpacked, it's unpacked, it's all over the place. So you got five of this and 12 of those and 16 of this and 32 of that and four of these and four more of those things and five of that and three of this and two of those. You've, you've seen all of that Buddhism, right? Oh, yeah. Well, that's, that's all Buddhism as has been completely unpacked. But when you understand that we can pack that stuff back up again, then it becomes just one thing. 
The teach the Buddha says, I only teach one thing both formally and presently, and that is dukkha, dukkha naroda. Basically, what that means is to see the dukkha and come out of it immediately. <laughs> and yet, most of the Western meditation is all about uh, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again, work hard, struggle. There's got to be a, a pony and all of that horse shit someplace. <laughs> but Dukkha Naroda is different than the practice of Vipassana and that even in the Satipatthana Sutta, eventually when it gets down to the fourth tetrad, which is the uh, the Dhamma or the contents of the mind. In the uh, Satipatthana Sutta, it lists uh, them in the following order. Number one is hindrances. Number two is the five aggregates. Number three is the seven factors of enlightenment. And the fourth one is the four noble truths. And then a great exposition on the, um, the Eightfold Noble Path. But from that very... Uh, place which is really deep into the uh, uh, that sutta, it says that the hindrances must be removed. And this is something that most of the Western meditation students don't understand about the teaching of the Buddha, is that hindrances are to be seen through investigation and immediately removed. So we don't note it and note it again and note it again. No, we have to take right effort. And the right effort is to change the content of the mind. See, it's interesting because, uh, you know, sometimes you hear uh, recommendations of, okay, so you see uh, a hindrance arise, you see, you know, a mind state arise and um, just observe it, just, you know, be, be with it. Don't try to change it. Um, you know, uh, I, I think the idea being, I don't know, that then you're going into some kind of grasping, you're going into craving, uh, clinging, um, you're going into some kind of uh, uh, aversion. But the idea You're here very very sharp if you can see you going into it most students especially in the beginning wake up only after they're deep in it yeah yeah sometimes i mean I, sometimes i can see aversion you know arising in reaction to a mind state or a sensation or whatever and then you know sometimes you just boom you're just it's like uh, you enter a dream, and then you come out of that dream, and it really is sometimes like a dream, you know, like uh, you, you just become lost in it, and it's unclear if it was a second, five seconds, ten seconds, thirty seconds. It has that you're talking of... about while you're sitting there uh, doing what you call the practice of Vipassana, you'll find that the mind goes off into a dream state. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah, sometimes it, it's less like a line of thinking. It's almost like a dream sometimes. I find I go into it. absolutely correct. Let me give you a, a more inclusive definition of the word dream, 
Most people think that dreaming is done only at night. But every kid in school gets um, whacked by the teacher for daydreaming. <laughs> what is daydreaming means not paying attention to what's going on, especially not paying attention to the teacher. Okay. Right. Yeah. That's okay. So basically what we recognize in meditation is, is that there's a lot of dreaming going on. But that doesn't mean that we, uh, okay, so I see a lot of dreaming going on. Let's co let's keep dreaming. No, right. No. And my understanding is even those dreams that feel like you couldn't possibly uh, have avoided them, but th they are rooted often in craving or aversion. So, you know, maybe uh, a little sensation arose, you had some aversion to it, and then your body, whoop, you, now you're in a dream, you know, uh, mm -hmm. and then you pop out of it, and there's a chain, there is a, a sort of causal chain, but you're not always able to see it. Okay. Well, let's, let's bring it to this then. Many people who practice Vipassana and the noting method do, in fact, go into these dream states or dreamlike states, and what they call it is deep meditation. And they go deep. I remember a movie. Uh, um, oh, I don't remember who was in it. Uh, Eddie Murphy. And he was a cop in this one, and he was going deep undercover. And they had like a three-minute discussion of how deep into undercover he was going to go. He was going to go so deep, <laughs> you know, like this. Uh, and that we have to understand that the teachings of the Buddha is about waking up, not going deep. It's going up, not down. And yet most of the Westerners, when they go into meditation, they will go deep into it. They will go down. And mm -hmm. what we want is we want to go up. Yeah. Okay. Which means that any kind of thoughts that we recognize is the kind of thoughts that will take us down. We want to throw those out and change what we're thinking and to go up instead. Mm -hmm. And this is a major change in the correct practice, and most Westerners will practice wrong for years. And eventually they come through it anyway. They begin to change naturally the way that they're practicing, mm -hmm. because the way that they weren't practicing before is not giving them any results. And if they persist, then they'll either change the way that they practice or they'll stop persisting and they quit. And most people quit. Just like you were saying that you were quitting. The reason that you were quitting was because you were not getting any visible gain from doing it. That the promise for gain is always open to the future. And also, you know, I think uh, circumstances of life, new jobs, you know, all the pop up, you think, oh boy, couldn't possibly meditate when I have so much work to do. Um, but, you know, I think at a certain point you realize it, it's sort of like, I don't know, like taking a medicine that's going to, uh, you know, 
keep you alive or something. Like at a certain point, I think you, you, you recognize that you can't just stop the practice. You, you can't just uh, okay. be there sometimes. So let's use the analogy of the medicine for just a moment. Does medicine have to taste bad? Does it have to be ridiculously bad tasting? Does it have to be um, uh, a disaster in the process? Right. Okay. An example of that would be the, uh, a child getting a vaccination for measles. That yeah. shot is painful if it's given in a way where the child uh, does, you know, they set it up so that, it, you know, they're there now. This is going to be okay. This is going to prick a little bit and all of that kind of stuff. And they could handle the, the, the child a toy get them distracted, go ahead and give the shot. Right. And the child doesn't even know about it. And so they don't have any trauma at all because they've been distracted. Another way of thinking about it is, um, let's see, back to Mary Poppins, a spoonful of sugar will help the medicine go down. Yeah. So you can think of Vipassana practice, the way that the Mahasi practices is taking the raw medicine Moral medicine, it tastes terrible, but it's supposed to be good for you, right? Mm. And there's mm. no enjoyment in taking the medicine, and the benefits are not, uh, let us say, the cost-benefit analysis is not yet realized. It's interesting uh, that you sort of found, you know, that in my sort of off-the-cuff remark about medicine, you know, I think maybe you saw that maybe, you know, there's some uh, maybe unconscious idea, right, about the practice. I will say that um, that there's a bit less of that. I, I am seeing it more now. Uh, Our as, society is really based on no pain, no gain. No question, yeah. Okay. Yep. The Buddhist practice is all about, hey, man, let's stop that pain. And that's your gain. <laughs> okay, so this is actually, let's look at it uh, from the perspective now of Dukkha, Dukkha, Naroda as, in fact, the Four Noble Truths. That when we see Dukkha, that means that we can see the danger in things. And the second noble truth, which is going to be most of our teachings so that you can begin to really understand the nature of dukkha and so that you can catch it quickly so that you can come out of it and immediately go into the third noble truth. So that you recognize that, hey, I am not suffering right now and I know that I'm not suffering. Isn't this marvelous for finally I'm not suffering at all? And yet most people, when they're practicing, they, no teacher will tell them, work with the third noble truth. Get yourself into a state that is free from suffering rather than just continuing to look at the suffering. Mm -hmm. We have right. to actually bring that third noble truth into play, and there's a method for doing that. Now, when we call it the Eightfold Noble Path, there's a problem with the language. In fact, most of the problem with Buddhism is 
I've got something going on. I don't know why that happens, but it did, and I can't hear anything but the noise. Okay, now it's gone. Sorry about that. Oh. Okay, so we were just about to talk about the Eightfold Noble Path as a bad translation, and that most of the translations of Buddhism into the English language is problematic that the original translations that uh, were done by I.B. Honer and Riles Davies and uh, uh, his wife, uh, they, they did the lexicons. They did all of the work. And now all the modern translators are just using the, the wrong and bad lexicons from 100 years ago. And that even most of the translators today will even, uh, if the right translation is in the lexicon or in the dictionary, they'll choose the wrong definition and then translate it wrongly. Hmm. Okay. And there's many, many words like that. And you can see that many of these words actually are Christian words. This is why Buddhism looks like a religion, smells like a religion, and acts like a religion, is because it's been completely mislabeled with all of these words of a religion. Monk, nun, monastery, uh, chanting, uh, prayer, meditation even, concentration. All of these words are wrongly translated. And the first one that I'm going to introduce to you is the Eightfold Noble Path, because it's not a path at all. When we think of a path, we think about a, a, a trail. And that that trail then, um, in fact, one of the big distinctions between the highways in Texas and in the Midwest and the highways in North Carolina and Virginia is because the, in Virginia, all of the highways were just old Indian trails that they paved over. Mm -hmm. We're out in the West, they didn't have any trails, and so they did straight roads because it was easy to build straight roads. Hmm. But in North Carolina, all of the roads, in the local roads, not the freeways, not the new ones, but all the old original roads, they're just all over the place. Hmm. They'll go around anything because the original animals that were on that track went around. Okay, so this is the idea of a path, and the path goes from here to there. And so we get the idea that the practice of meditation is to go from here to there. Mm -hmm. That's the wrong way of looking at it. This is not an Eightfold Noble path to get someplace. It's the Eightfold Noble method to get out of the mess you're in right now. It's almost like the Eightfold Noble Method is how do you put a key in the door lock, turn the key, and open the door? It's that quick. We're mm. talking about a two-second operation. <laughs> Not 20 years. <laughs> so this is the first big mistake that people make is thinking that it's an Eightfold Noble Path rather than an Eightfold Noble method of coming out of suffering right this very moment. 
Okay, so let's review the Eightfold Noble Path, the Eightfold Noble Method. The first item always on the list, but before we give you what the items are, let's talk about how the list is formed, because there are three ways to do the list. Mm -hmm. the, the Eightfold Noble Path is normally broken down for beginners as Sila Samati Panya. So that Sila comes first, we teach the precepts to the kids. Because they're not smart enough to figure out how to live their own life. These kids then take these precepts, rites, rules, and rituals, and then destroy the rest of their lives with it. <laughs> but at least society works because the kids are not out now killing each other and killing their parents and everybody. They're not just rampantly stealing. They've got a, um, a society built on these uh, rules, whether you call them the Ten Commandments or the Buddhist precepts or whatever. We need these rules in order to build a society. But yet everybody in that society who wanted that society is still unsatisfied with that society. So the, the idea then is to start off in ignorance or to start off in uh, no wisdom at all is to start off by giving people a set of rules. You've got to behave yourself. Sila. Samati Panya. In fact, some people in practicing Buddhism will say, okay, the new monk, he has to get his um, uh, monkly uh, behavior completely correct before, you know, like two or three years before he'll ever sit down for meditation. Mm -hmm. But the way that we look at it is, is that, oh, you're going to meditate. That means you're going to sit down, you're going to close your eyes. And because you sit down and you close your eyes, you're not stealing, you're not hurting, you're not doing anything. Your, your sila is, is immediately wonderful right now. <laughs> mm, In this very moment, it's good enough. Right, right. This is the way to look at it, is always from this very moment. So sila samati panya is normally the way that it's taught. But... Due to several conversations with Achan Po, he has said that he wants it to be taught not that way at all, but the, in total noble, from the very, very get-go, the very top. We're going to always teach it in the super mundane. In that regard, we're going to start with noble right view right from the very beginning, rather mm -hmm. than go through Sila, Samati, Panya, and get to our Panya through Samati. We're going to go from to Panya immediately. Right. Okay. That's interesting, right? Because you said, uh, you pointed out that it's often taught that you uh, you need to hone your morality first and then you cultivate concentration and then you bring mindfulness and then eventually you begin to develop wisdom. But what okay. you're saying is that you we actually want to start off with wisdom. You start out with wisdom. Interesting. Interesting. Mm -hmm. And the wisdom is, uh, let us say, a skill to be developed, but it is developed in combination with the other things. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, right view comes first. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't have called me if you didn't have some sort of right view. Mm. 
you would have been wallowing in whatever bit of the moment that you were having and not know how to get out of it. But you've gotten a little bit of right view. Hey, I can get out of this. Mm-hmm. As you hone your view, it's not, hey, I can get out of it. It's, hey, I am getting out of it. And, hey, I'm out of it right now. Mm-hmm. Okay. Not someday. Right. This is not someday the prince will come. This is, I am the prince. Mm. Okay. So this is one's right view, and right view runs first. Now, the second one, the most important one, is sati. Sati means to wake up. It is an absolutely wrong translation to translate sati as mindfulness. Sati is actually wake up. To really start to pay attention, to note what's going on. Basically, to come out of our dream immediately and to wake up. And that is a skill that needs to be developed. And so we need to practice sati over and over and over and over and over again to keep waking up. And so we practice anapanasati as a method for doing this. So we take the Eightfold Noble Path, which is the core teaching of the Buddha. We apply anapanasati to that for the purpose of fulfilling the seven of uh, the um, uh, the four foundation of mindfulness. Okay, so waking up, sati, and then what do we do is we investigate. Generally, what they mean by mindfulness, uh, an example of that, you may not uh, have heard this before, but uh, very young kids, they say, mind your P's and Q's. Have you ever heard that? Yeah, yeah, I have heard that. That's because the P and the Q, it depends upon which direction the, the line is on that goes down. Is it on the left or the right? Okay. That mind your P's and Q's means you have to wake up and look and know what you're doing so that you can draw the P or the Q correctly rather than being sloppy, like backwards S's, backwards R's, that kind of thing. Okay. Uh, But that's only 26 letters of the alphabet to mind. And so it takes, but it takes still kids quite a while to, uh, to learn that. So this is how we mean by mindfulness, is to mind our P's and the Q's. But we can say that sati and investigation are actually right view, and sati is to wake up, to wake up and really look. Mm -hmm. This is what we mean by right view, and that when we look, we make a decision as to whether the thoughts, et cetera, and I'll, the et cetera is because I have a very large um, definition of thought. The thought doesn't necessarily have to be words. They can be pictures, they can be feelings, they can be anything um, like that. Okay, so. Um, these thoughts can be classified as either wholesome thoughts or unwholesome thoughts. Almost always our thoughts are unwholesome. (laughs) They are almost always unwholesome as opposed to little kids two and three years old 
all of their all their thoughts are about play, about joy, about figuring something out. You can hear the little kids laugh and play until it's time to go to school. <laughs> and now it's sit down and learn your ABCs, do your one, two, threes, clean your room, do your homework. And we teach, train our kids out of the nurturing, loving, uh, playful environment into a critical get the work done environment. And so we pick that up and we go with that and we spend most of our time in critical thinking. And we need to come out of that critical thinking. Uh, and that coming out of that critical thinking means that we're going to start going into nurturing thinking. And the nurturing, imagine that a mother has a brand new infant. She is going to nurture that child. She's going to take care of that child. When that child has his first poopy, probably after a couple of days, the whole, ha the whole household is happy. That baby has done a poopy. Right, but if that kid's in high school and he does a poopy on the floor in the house, people are not going to be so uh, nurturing for him. Yeah, you yeah. see what I mean? Okay, yeah. so there was a time in our lives when everything was good, everything was nurtured, everything was okay. But as we grew up, we grew up into what some people will call the reality of the situation, just life sucks. Mm -hmm. And you've got to be on your toes. You've got to take care because this, this place, this world is dangerous. Okay. And so this whole idea then is, is that we come out of nurturing into a state of uh, critical and now we have taken that critical thinking and that critical mind into our meditation session, thinking that we can critical mind our way back into nurturing. Right, right. Doesn't happen like that. <laughs> mm -hmm. mm. That's really like uh, uh, the only tool we have is a shovel. And so we think that, well, that means that we've got to dig. Instead of saying, hey, I've got this nice shovel. Maybe I can uh, trade it in for a balloon. Hmm. So we begin to dig critically. And the more we dig, the more dirt we find. Hmm. If we dig deep enough, we've got ourselves into quite a hole. <laughs> but this is the way that everybody practices it this is the way that the buddha started in the beginning he went through a lot of austerities he found out what was not working and then he figured out was work was working and in western buddhism most people find out about what the buddha was teaching and then they apply it in their critical mind thinking that what he was teaching was good but he's talking about no we have to change our frame of reference Okay, that we can't say everything is okay, and so therefore someday I'll see everything is okay. We can say, no, everything is okay now. Let me see it that way right now. Mm -hmm. 
And so everything winds up being immediate. And if we are practicing correctly, we're practicing correctly and we're getting the good benefits of our practice immediately. And because we're getting the good feelings and the good right away immediately, because we have in fact seen that these thoughts that I'm having are unwholesome, let me throw those out and replace them with something wholesome right now, immediately. And because I can do that right now immediately, I'm getting good benefit from my practice immediately. Now, you probably heard someplace or another, and I can tell you several places that I know that exist. One is in the Dhammapada, the other one is in Sutta number 38, and it's in all kinds of places. I would say that there's at least 20 different places where this phrase is used. And that is, is that the teachings of the Buddha are good in the beginning. They are good in the middle, and they are good in the end. Full stop with that. They are good in the beginning. So if you've got a meditation practice or a, a, a Vipassana practice, and you're not getting good immediate benefit out of it right away, you're not practicing according to the Buddha's path. You may be doing something else. You may be doing what other uh, Western meditation teachers said that this was the teachings of the Buddha. But we begin to understand, no, the Buddha is all about what's happening in this present moment. Not what you're planning to get out of this present moment 10 years from now. Mm -hmm. Right. That's a major change in reference. Okay, and we need for you to make that change of reference that you're not practicing Vipassana to get benefit out of it. You're practicing Vipassana because you are getting benefit out of it. Mm. And this gives back to the old Zen koan of uh, the, the Zen student goes to the old master and says, Master, do you meditate to become enlightened? The old Zen master says, no, I meditate because I am enlightened. <laughs> okay, why? Because it's good. It's good in the beginning, it's good in the middle, and it's good in the end if we're practicing correctly. That's an important point, and that will keep one from going eventually into some stupid dark night of the soul or uh, misery or whatever like that. Because mm -hmm. you can imagine that if somebody is depressed and then they sit down to meditate, they're just going to meditate on their own stupid depression, and it's just going to go down and down and down and down into a deeper depression. But they have to be able to see, hey, that's a depressive thought. Let me throw that thought out and have a better thought. This is what we mean by right effort. Mm -hmm. So the right effort and right sati and right uh, view or right investigation run and circle around each other. These three are the first things that are brought together. And once we get those three going and we start getting the benefit out of it, then confidence starts to grow so that I know that I can do this. I know that I can clean my mind out. I know that I do not have to think about that lawyer. I know I don't have to think about that speeding ticket. I know I don't have to answer that email right now. Right now, in this very moment, I can sit here and I can relax and be happy. 
An example would be I've got to go to the bank and I can go to the bank next week and I've got the papers that I need to go to the bank. But how many times do I go to the bank in my mind before I actually go to the bank? <laughs> 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 times. Every time I think about going to the bank, then I have to think about, do I have all the papers? And I'm thinking about going and being in the bank and all of that kind of stuff. And I'm just wasting my time because I'm not going to the bank. I'm just thinking about going to the bank. Why don't I wait until it's time to go to the bank? And then I can think about going to the bank. And until then, I don't have to think about it. All I have to do is make sure I've got the papers, and once I've got sure that I've got the papers, I don't have to think about it anymore. And yet we keep thinking about it and thinking about it and thinking about it. Another would be a job interview. Can you go to a job interview? You know it's going to be three weeks in advance. Can you walk into that interview without having spent three weeks of thinking about that interview? <laughs> not, not me. And every time that we think about that interview, how do we feel? Uptight, nervous, my life is on the line, my job is on the line, all of that kind of stuff. Yep. Yep. Mm -hmm. And so when we go into that interview, now we're super uptight. <laughs> but if we didn't give it a thought, hey, I can handle that interview just fine. I'm, I'm as ready as I need to be. I don't have to think about it. Yeah. And then I can go into the interview happy and joyful and interested in the interviewer and have a really nice conversation. Mm -hmm. Okay, so this is the way that we're going to start practicing the uh, our um, Anapanasati is to do something when we remember to do it. So sati is the first thing to do. If we can remember to do it, then we can do it. If you're very, very good at something, but you forget to do it, then it's undone whether you're good at it or not. But if you remember to do it, then you get it done whether you're even good at it or not. That's why sati is so important. And so we begin to use sati and tie it to the breath. Because normally when we're uh, sitting in meditation, most students will only take the, the amount of breath needed that the body is, uh, the, the mind actually is, is quite conservative. And that uh, what we're actually intending to do is to get the mind energized. This is why we do the long, deep breathing. Now, a lot of uh, Vipassana methods say, oh, well, you, this is not about controlling the breath. Don't control the breath. Right. Well, if yeah. you don't control the breath, then what uh, investment do you have in the breath? Not much, which means now it's really easy for the mind to just wander away. Mm -hmm. But if we're actually doing something, and let me use this example. Imagine that you were a goldsmith making a ring and mounting a diamond. And that you keep watching what you're doing and you keep looking. If you forget that you're doing the diamond, you could wander off and in la-la land and you're not getting the work done, right? 
you have to remember and pay attention to what you're doing and keep going on it. Okay, so you've now got your mind and your hands involved with the doing of the ring. Mm -hmm. Okay, and so that jeweler can sit there without any Anapanasati practice and, and have his whole mind concentrating on that ring for 10, 15, 20 minutes while he's doing the work. But that same jeweler could sit down in front of that uh, ring with the half-mounted diamond and just look at it and watch it. How long is he going to remember to continue to think about that ring? Or is his mind going to wander away? Mm -hmm. Okay. So by actively engaging with the breath, we can keep track of it a whole lot easier. If we just say, I'm just going to watch the breath, but not do anything with it, that's like the jeweler just watching that diamond ring without doing anything to it. And how long is he going to be able to do that? Mm. So uh, part of the Anapana practice then would to be to keep the breath in uh, one's attention the entire time. Um, I wouldn't whether, say it like that. No? I would say when you remember. When you remember. Because when we use entire time, now we're being back out of the moment into a long clock or a calendar. Yeah. And we're uh, setting a goal that no one can match. And so when you catch yourself not being mindful, then you can beat yourself up, be critical of, oh, you weren't mindful then. But that's not very mindful. Being really mindful means to wake up and say, hey, I'm okay now. Mm -hmm. Never mind how long I was in misery. I'm out of it right now. I can come back out of it. But if I sit there and pine for how long I've been in misery, <laughs> then I'm just still in misery. Right. This so, is what we mean by coming out immediately out of that critical thinking into the nurturing thought. And We're going back, I can do this. And going back to the breath, you know, over and over again, I would say that in my own practice up to this point, uh, you know, I do focus on the breath, particularly at the beginning, I will focus on the breath to sort of, you know, uh, help get into a, a more consolidated state of mind and to begin to uh, eliminate some of the hindrances and and then eventually I sort of open up the awareness and, and and there are times where I will lose the breath completely. I will come back to it if I feel like I'm sort of, uh, I don't know, slipping into thoughts a lot. But I haven't up to this point kept the breath, sought to keep the breath in attention, uh, I would okay. say, in a continuous way. The way that the Anapanasati Sutta is stated, yeah. using the word sati often in the sense that you have sati or mindfulness on that long in-breath to know that this is a long in-breath. We understand that this is a long in-breath. And then we have sati on the out-breath, that we know that this is a long out-breath. Sati on the in-breath and sati on the out-breath. This is two times of sati in one breath. And we want to allow the breath 
to slow down so that it becomes long, knowing that with this long in-breath and long out-breath, there are plenty of time to do all that we need to do within Anapanasati and still come back twice on each breath. This is an in-breath. This is an out-breath. This is a long in-breath. This is a long out-breath. And my how nice this long in-breath is. And my how nice this long breath out is. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's one's right effort is to uh, mindfully breathe in long. And one's right effort is to mindfully breathe out wrong. Okay, to remember to do this. So, that's one aspect of one's right effort. The other aspect of one's right effort is to actually change the contents of the mind. And to change the content of the mind from normally where the mind is wondered to, is is wondered to someplace else or some other time. We almost are always in the past, and if we're in another place in our minds, then we're obviously in the past. Mm -hmm. Because we don't know what's happening in that place in the present moment. We only know what happens there in the past when we were there. So when we think about Tulsa, mm -hmm. then it's something that happened in the past. Or if mm -hmm. we think about Chicago, that's something that happened in our past. So any thoughts that we have that are not about where we are right now or thoughts about what's happening any other time, past or future, we're going to bring that those thoughts back to the present moment, here now. That's also one's right effort is to bring the thoughts out of the past and the future from someplace else and bring the mind to the thinking about what's happening right here, right now. This is also part of recognizing that we can throw these hindrances out, these thoughts of the past and the future. And we're also going to, um, uh, I'll introduce it as Anapanasati point number 10 or step 10, though these are not steps in the sense you take the first step and then later you take the second and then later the third. But an easy way to understand that is people, when they go into the meditation hall, they don't bring the body in and leave the mind and the feelings in the bed. Mm. And then next year they come and bring only the feelings in and let the body stay in the bed. No, you've got to bring the whole show in. And when you're breathing in, you've got the whole show to deal with. And when you're breathing out, you've got the whole show to deal with. Mm -hmm. When I mean the whole show, the Satipatthana, the body, the feelings, the mind, and the mind's objects. Mm -hmm. And what we're going to do in the mind area is we're going to gladden the mind. We're going to perk it up. We're going to let it be um, strong and useful and free from hindrances. Mm -hmm. When the mind is strong and free from hindrances and we're paying attention to the breathing, that's a really nice state. Feels good. And we begin to recognize I can do this. I can actually get myself into a good state of, of feeling, which you've never been practicing before in Vipassana. You never had the idea that, hey, I can actually feel good right now. I'm going to have to do this Vipassana and maybe years from now I'll feel good. But now we're going to change the emphasis so that you can begin to feel good right now. Mm -hmm. 
And we, there's a lot of stuff that you can tell yourself that's gladdening the mind. The kind of thoughts that we could have would be, everything's okay right now. Everything is fine. Another way to, in fact, the word that the Buddha used is, aha, I see you, Myra, which means, aha, I can see those hindrances. Now, aha is a joyful aha. It's an, not an, oh, no, here's the hindrances again. All oh, hindrances are so much work. All oh, these things are so terrible. I don't know if I'll ever come out of the hindrances. That right there is a hindrance. Yeah. Right. But if hmm. we can say, I got you. I caught you that time. I am not going to think about that problem. I'm going to let that problem be. Let that pro I made up that problem. I want to let it be. Have a life of its own without my interdiction. <laughs> and so we can then give ourselves permission to nurture ourselves. Hey, this is so nice. This is good. Everything's going to be all right. Everything's going to be fine. These are the kind of words that you want to start using. And it's always about right now. Everything's going to be all right. Everything is fine right now. Then you can make a little list. There's no dangers right now. There's no alligators on the floor. Look around the room that you're in. It's a safe place. Why is it that people don't feel safe? They're in a safe place. The mafia is not there. The cops are not busting your door down. Why is it that we feel unsafe? Oh, because something in the future might happen. That's why I feel unsafe now is because it's dangerous out there. And if I go out there, okay, the answer is yes, but right now it's not dangerous. Mm -hmm. Let us know that and have the feeling of security, have the feeling of satisfaction that everything is okay right now. Everything is fine. I do not need to be enlightened. I've got already everything that I need. That's why the Zen say you're already enlightened. If you want enlightened, you're not enlightened. Mm -hmm. But if you're satisfied with the way things are, then you're light. <laughs> I know it sounds like a catch-22. So let's go back to the Eightfold Noble Path to finish it off for just a bit. And then next time we talk, we'll talk a little deeper. And that is with right view, right sati, and right effort in play so that we can bring ourselves into a state of satisfaction. Then that's the knowledge that we can, in fact, bring ourselves into a state of satisfaction and we begin to change our attitude. The attitude of being a loser of all meditation is hard into the attitude of a winner. Oh, this is a piece of cake. This is good stuff. Mm -hmm. And eventually we begin to get the attitude that no matter what hindrances come by, no matter how much the mind is obstructed, I can in fact clean it out, come back to this present moment and be okay. I can see the truth of the reality of the situation no matter what. Mm -hmm. That's confidence or shraddha. And this is what gives the idea of a winner. And this is what we mean by the Pali word pity. The word pity means, I got it. Mm -hmm. Okay, it's like receiving a wonderful gift. I've got it. 
Okay, so this is the attitude. It's the attitude. I've got it. Mm -hmm. And so this is why the Buddha is known as a lion. It's the attitude. What is the attitude of a lion? It's not the attitude of a victim. Most people start meditation, oh, I'm a victim, I'm not good enough, I need meditation. Let meditation be my uh, guru, um, I need help from the outside. Right? Now we have the attitude, I can do this myself. Mm -hmm. I do not need any outside help. Mm -hmm. I could do this on my own. And I also begin to understand this Eightfold Noble Method that the Buddha has set out works. This stuff works. Mm -hmm. That's actually a complete definition of uh, the entire teachings of the Buddha. I've got uh, quite a number. One <laughs> is Dukkha Dukkha Naroda. The Buddha had that one. Mm -hmm. uh, Goenka says, never mind, start again. <laughs> has to be said right, but that's the whole teaching of the Duda. Never mind the dukkha, start again into being wholesome and happy. Mm. Another one is Bob Marley song, or uh, <laughs> Bobby McFerrin, depending upon your choice, and that is, don't worry, be happy. Mm -hmm. That's the entire teaching of the Buddha. Don't worry, be happy. But then the one that I just gave you is this stuff works. <laughs> That's the entire teaching of the Buddha. This stuff works in the sense that without this stuff, it don't work. But with this stuff, it works. And so this is the teaching of the Buddha, getting ourselves into the attitude of, hey, this stuff works. This is good stuff. I really like it. It's not a promise. It's not a voucher. It's the meal. It's, it's, this is not a voucher for food. This is the meal itself. <laughs> you can get yourself into a good state. And we do this with the Eightfold Noble Path, and that's why we start with wisdom in the beginning. And with wisdom, we combine the samadhi, which is the uh, right effort and the right, uh, and then finally the outcome is an organized, unified mind, a noble mind, and a mind that is noble and free from desire and free from wants and free from cares and free from anger. He doesn't have a problem with the uh, precepts. He doesn't even care what the precepts are. He doesn't even have to know what they are, but he's keeping them anyway because his mind is noble. He doesn't hurt anyone because he doesn't hurt anyone, not because it's some rule. Right. Okay. Right. And so the natural outcome then is the sila. It's not something that we uh, force on the child in the beginning. It's something the child eventually sees for himself and recognizes through wisdom that, hey, if I hurt that guy, his family is going to come back with a vengeance and try to hurt me too. Maybe I should not try to hurt this guy. We're always thinking about fear of retribution, 
But the reality is, is that if we break the precepts, uh, then the breaking of the precept is, is its own retribution in the sense of the feeling bad that if I yell at someone, I'm going to remember that I yelled at someone and I'm, I don't like yelling at people. Right. Right. So I'm going to stop doing that. I don't have to worry about the dim yell back. I'm going to say I, that's not the issue. The issue is I don't like that I'm yelling. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is the way that we begin to practice is that we're not concerned too much with uh, being critical about our behavior or our thoughts or anything. We want to be really nurturing instead. To nurture yourself. Mm-hmm. When thoughts of uh, the past to the future hindrances arise, then sati kicks in. And we say, aha, I can see that stuff. I can remember that I don't have to think like that. And I can come out of that thinking right now. So instead of the Mahasi method of noting and noting and noting and noting, what we're going to do instead is note it well and let it pass. Mm-hmm. Note it well and let this go. Mm -hmm. We're not trying to stop it, we're just trying to get out of its way. Mm -hmm. Let that stuff go right by. I don't have to think about that. I can be right here in this present moment and I can let all of those thoughts just melt away. Mm -hmm. So this is the Eightfold Noble Path that a better way of looking at it is, is the method because the method is to be applied in any moment you can remember to apply it. It's not a long-term goal. Right. It's something that you do immediately. Get yourself out of your misery right now. Mm -hmm. Take a deep, long breath. Let out a sigh and say, wow, I'm glad I don't have to think about that right now. It's definitely a different orientation. Go ahead. Oh, that's just that's a it's a different orientation, and uh, I think you honed right in on a a sort of a striving, uh, you know, future uh, oriented view of the practice. You know that you have to sort of uh, you know grind your way to an eventual result. Right, and this is not that. This is like the carpenter, while he's making the chair, he's happy. He doesn't have to wait for the chair to be completed before he's satisfied. He can be satisfied that this turn is good. This groove is right. What he's doing in this moment is good. And if he keeps doing it like that, then the chair naturally is going to work out just fine. You know, it's interesting. It reminds me of... uh, being in college, university, and you know, you, you would you could tell the students who were there because they loved their subject of study and they loved to be able to to be thinking about their subject and to be working creatively. And uh, you know, the the degree was yes, like part of it, but it wasn't just the only factor. And then you could tell the people that were just like, ah, I just got to get a degree, you know, and they just hated every other part of it. 
And uh, those are the people you knew that they weren't going to, uh, they weren't going to be too successful if they weren't there, you know, enjoying the process. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So if you can, you can put that to your meditation or in fact, the whole life that if you're not enjoying what you're doing, then you're going to wind up continuing to not enjoy what you're doing. And it doesn't matter what else you're ever doing. You're not going to enjoy it because you're already in the habit of not enjoying it. We lost our enjoyment of life at the age of six. Yeah. And it's time to regain that. To regain the joy of living. To take that deep breath and say, everything's okay. Everything is fine. It, that did resonate with me when you were talking about uh, young, young kids. And uh, it, it's kind of interesting if you haven't been around young children in a long time. And then you, you're around them again. Uh, you can learn a lot about human beings uh, and, and, you know, based on the sort of uh, the outlook and, and, and the way that young kids act. You know, I've noticed that very young children are uh, incredibly loving. Uh, uh, they're silly. They're playful. They're compassionate. They're curious. You know, they sort of represent so many of the positive qualities of human beings. You know, it's and hard. Yet to our society <laughs> works really hard to beat all of that stuff out of our kids. Uh, yeah. Productive. It's really, yeah, it's really remarkable. So many of those qualities are driven, I don't know, underground or eventually, you know, turn to, to be viewed as, uh, Hindrances in life, you know, the compassion is, you know, going to make life hard for you. Critical thinking is highly regarded in the Western society. Yeah. So it's kind of like a rediscovery, I think, maybe part of this process is some of these. Mm -hmm. Right. Rediscover the fact that you've got a great friend there that you've been fussing at all of this time. You want that friend to be up to scratch, and because of that, you've destroyed your relationship with yourself. Mm -hmm. And so now let everything be okay. You're great. You've already got everything you need. You're already successful. You're still alive. So congratulate yourself and enjoy the state that you're in. <laughs> This is the teachings of the Buddha that is so difficult for the Western mind to grasp hold of, that you already are okay. Just yeah. stop with all the hindrances and just be happy. It, it, it does seem to be almost a, a diametrical opposition, you know, because it's so much about uh, imposing your will on the world, you know, that your success becomes uh, a measure of your ability to, uh, you know, make plans, implement plans, follow through, and to execute those plans such that you see your will enacted. And, uh, you know, so much of that is with striving and planning and thinking. But we've been told that if we do that, then we'll get what we want, and if we get what we want, we'll be happy. <laughs> 
And the Buddha is saying just the opposite. He says that because you want something you don't have, you are now unhappy. And if you get what you want, that may not get you happy. You may, in fact, get that new car and you're completely dissatisfied with it. You may get that new job and you hate it. But we tell ourselves that if I give what I want, I'll be happy. And then we get disappointed. And so we say, oh, well, it's something else that'll make me happy. And so I'll go and I'll want it. it you know, and it, that's a funny thing, too, because when you say that to somebody, you know, that mechanism of, well, you know, I, I want to buy a new book. Um, and, you know, the, the story about how if I get this, it's going to complete me in some way and I'll be satisfied. And everyone says, no, I don't really think that, you know. But I think we really do. I mean, we really do sort of think that. Um, but we sort of tell ourselves that's not how it works. But if you really look close, you know, uh, at, you know, I don't know, uh, the drive to get whatever object it is. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, anticipating it. I'll just point this out. You know, I, I'm a film fan. And uh, I'm a, you know, there are groups on the internet who are collectors. And it's very interesting because leading up to, say, like a sale of Blu-rays, you know, they'll be talking about, oh, I'm going to get this. I'm going to get this. I want to get this. You know, and it, it's all this chatter about what they want to get. And then they place the order and then they post the receipts. Look, you know, I bought all these Blu-rays, hundreds of dollars of Blu-rays. Look, here's my receipt. And then they talk about, uh, did they ship it? Did they ship it? Did they ship it? Did they ship? Did your ship? Did your ship? And then they get it and they, they shoot a video of an unboxing where they're like, look, here's the box and here's... You never hear about, oh, I watched the film. I like the film. It's all this sort of ritual of anticipating, getting the thing, ordering the thing, getting the thing. And then as soon as you get it, it goes on the shelf and you're like, what do I get next? I mean, mm -hmm. and, and that's kind of everything in our whole lives. Every single thing, whether it's degrees. Now that's whether... insight. <laughs> now that's Vipassana, is to recognize that, hey, I spent all of that time and all that money and all of that energy and all of those efforts because I wanted to feel good. And when I got what I wanted, I didn't feel elated yeah. because I was already in the habit of being uh, dissatisfied. So when I got the stuff, I'll put it on the shelf and I'll go want something new. Or the, the one other thing they'll sometimes do is say, look, my Blu-ray has a little dent in it, a tiny dent. And they'll say, I got to return this and get a new one. And it's almost like a, a recognition of like, wait a minute, I thought this thing was going to complete me, satisfy me, give me some joy. And then they write it off as like, well, no, it's because there's this tiny dent in it. Critical. Uh, being critical of it again. Uh -huh. And then they send it and they probably get another. And then, you know, and that, that, I mean, that is the primary mode of our attempts to be happy. I mean, materialism. 
is one of the primary mistakes we make of being happy. Yeah. And the teachings of the Buddha is all about, let's come out of our materialism because our materialism doesn't make me happy anyway. And so we go down to just the four basic requisites that we need adequate housing, we need adequate food, we need adequate shelter, and we need adequate medical attention. But in our society, you either don't have one or two of those things, or you've got everything in great abundance, and you're still not happy. That is basically that that bottom line, or that what is our... Um, worst case scenario that we can be happy in and so we shoot for that and basically then what happens over time is is that that bound that that bar gets lowered for instance in the beginning i only need one car i don't need two so long as it's a mercedes <laughs> and then i'll come down no just yeah. any car will do and now right. down to i don't need a car and that's the way that things are going uh, not in necessarily uh, because of Tesla or anything, but because uh, this is the right attitude. Is just that I don't need so much. I'm satisfied with what I have, mm-hmm. and so we come out of that desire. But we have to practice doing that because uh, we've gotten in such a bad habit of wanting things and wanting things, and the habit of thinking I'll be better off if I get what I want. You sort of recognize I'm already okay. I mean, imagine, I mean, well, to me, the idea of being satisfied with with what you have uh, is incredible. That would be quite, quite uh, worth, um, you know, any, any practice, you know, any efforts <laughs> Isn't it though? Just, to, but you can get yourself into that position anytime you want to by just remembering that you can, in fact, stop thinking the thoughts that are keeping you from being satisfied and start having thoughts that put you in a state of satisfaction. Mm-hmm. In this moment, just start thinking good thoughts, good wholesome thoughts, and you'll be okay. Mm-hmm. And that's the point that's missed in most meditations, is, is that they think that, oh, I have to look at dukkha and see dukkha and go to the bottom of dukkha. How much dukkha do you have to see before you wake up to say, that stuff is dukkha. I don't have to do anything with it. I can see dukkha from 30 yards away. I don't have to even go over there. I don't have to pick it up and wipe it all over me. <laughs> that's true. That is true. So we need to see Dukkha from a distance, see it as yeah. it's coming, and we'll never step in it. Right. Yeah. And so this is why Sati is a skill to be developed, because normally when we wake up, we wake up to the fact that I'm in Dukkha. Right. But as you begin to practice, you'll begin to wake up to say, hey, wait a minute, I, woke, I, w- I just woke up and everything is wonderful. I'm taking a deep breath, everything is nice. But in the beginning, normally when we start, we say, yeah, I, I, I uh, wait a minute, I wake up. Okay, I feel good now. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
And so this is a major change in the way that we practice. This is why we call it super mundane right from the very beginning, that we don't have to go through the mundane of, of the practice that you're talking about. What you're practicing is a mundane practice. So and we're talking just, about a super mundane practice or a supra mundane practice. Just to clarify that uh, for a minute, so so mundane is the sort of the idea of a path um, with the sort of requisite, you know, I'm going to practice, practice, I'm going to grind it out, eventually I'll achieve states and stages, and then maybe down the line I'll feel a bit better. Supra mundane signifies that uh, it's right now, that you're getting mm -hmm. the benefit now, that you're... Uh, Eliminating the hindrances now that you're feeling equanimous now. Mm hmm Exactly. Okay, good. Another way that we can talk about the supramundane, and I hope that I'm not opening too big of a Pandora's box, is, is that there are the first three fetters, personality view, uh, attachments to rights, rules, and rituals, and doubt. Right. Okay. We can take care of those three things immediately, but not for all time, just right now. I think I've heard of those in relation to the idea of first path or stream entry, that when you accomplish that uh, state, right, or that those fetters are dropped. That's typically how I've heard of those. Yes, but they're not dropped for all time. They're just dropped right now. Hmm. That's what we have to look at is always in the present moment, in the present moment. Now, there is actually progress, but that progress is not what people will think it is. That basically the progress that you make has to do with the confidence that you're building. And the more confidence that you build in the know and the more that you understand that this is the right way to do it. That number one, I don't have to worry about getting help from someone else. Number two, I can do this myself. Number three, I've got the tools that I need to do it with. When we've got those things, now our uh, determination or our enthusiasm begins to grow. And that enthusiasm, that determination, and, the, and the, even the word determination, there's a whole lot of words that can be used, but each one of them has a slight little thing. One would be like devotion or dedication. But devotion and dedication are like devoting to a god or dedicated to a practice or things like that. And we're not either dedicating or devoting. Mm -hmm. What we are is we're enthusiastic are determined, I'm coming out of suffering right now. And I mm. keep that determination. I keep that enthusiasm so that any time the Duke is there, I'm going to wake up and I'm going to say, I'm out of here. Mm. That's the path then of the soda pond is when that eagerness becomes almost uh, nonstop. Mm. That I'm eager for the Dhamma. That I'm willing to jump in any time that I can remember to jump in. And so the dropping of those three fetters, uh, it isn't necessarily 
a uh, like it happens down the line. It's never a one-time shot. And it's not a sort of gradual chipping away at them either. So when you're practicing, they go away. Let when us say it this way. Yeah. Let us say it like this, just as an example. Let us say that your house is infested with ants. And you see an ant, you see another ant, you see another ant, and you get the idea that the ants must be all over the place. Well, if you take an ant, if you see this ant right here, right now, you see that ant, you pick it up and you take it outside. You come back into the house, you see another ant. You pick that ant up and you take it outside. Eventually, your house is not going to have so many ants. But we're not looking for being ant-free for the whole house for all time. We're looking at, can I take this ant out? Yeah. Can I take this ant out? This, this hindrance is in the mind right now. Let me take that ant out and not worry about how many ants are left in the house. Mm -hmm. But the more ants you take out, then the fewer you're going to find. Mm -hmm. And occasionally you'll find another ant. You'll take that out and now the ants are even more rare. And so we can use it like that with the idea of blackheads or, um, in fact, the word in polyosopha actually means a canker or a, uh, a pocket of pus. <laughs> and that these pockets, they come up from time to time. Yeah. And we can take the, uh, the time and the effort to pop that pimple or to push out that blackhead. And now we're a little bit more free. And then later we'll find another blackhead and we'll pick that out. But if we look in the mirror and we see all these blackheads and we'll say, oh, no, oh, no, I'm full, full of blackheads. I'll never get my face. No, it's just one at a time. Yeah. Just one at a time. In this present moment, we get this one out, become free from that, throw that hindrance out, throw this hindrance out. Everything's already hunky-dory. And I'm enjoying removing hindrances. Ah, caught you there, too. Aha, I see you, Duca. Aha, <laughs> I see you. And then we pop it out. Mm. So this is a way of looking at it. So you can think of it as ants that you find one at a time and you put them out. Or mm. think about it as blackheads. But basically what we're talking about is, is that we've gotten ourselves into the habit of having one unwholesome thought after another, after another, and now we're going to start guarding the mind to start allowing only wholesome thoughts to come in. Mm -hmm. Which, by the way, is a whole lot easier work to do than to try to stop the mind, which a lot of Western meditators try to do. Mm, right. We're not trying to stop the mind, we're trying to give the mind something wholesome instead. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah, that's that's interesting. So, yeah, I think you're right. So, well, it's not me. This is the Buddha, and this is Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa. I've got a lineage here. <laughs> this is not me. I don't I don't invent this stuff. I'm just thinking about how, yeah, my own what my own sort of conceptualization. So, you know, if I think in my practice things are going well. It's almost like, okay, so 
I have sort of a, uh, you know, a um, open awareness and it's undisturbed and then a bad, something bad comes in, mm-hmm. you know, and so it, it's either open and it's, or there's something bad there. But I don't normally think of it as cultivating a positive mind state. Um, so, yeah, I, I, it, that's interesting. It's an interesting point. The Buddha talks about it the way that uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi has translated is is gladdening the mind, and that's a good way uh, to phrase it, but brightening the mind or elevating the mind. You see, if there's something bad in the mind, then naturally we want to hide from it. This is actually like going deep, like crawling under the bed or under the table or whatever like that because the dukkha but when the when the room is completely free from dukkha i don't have to hide under the bed anymore i can stand and shout and be joyful and whatnot okay so that's the way that we look at it is is that we have to gladden the mind or brighten the mind and that brightening the mind takes us in the direction of being satisfied with the way things are as opposed to being critical of the way things are and it takes us in the direction of being friendly to ourselves and friendly to other people rather than critical of ourselves and critical of other people so we cultivate friendship we cultivate um, uh, nurturing we cultivate wholesome thoughts about the present moment this is nice this is wonderful and we also uh, cultivate the sati to remember to keep watching the mind to see are these thoughts wholesome or are these thoughts unwholesome. Now you can practice this throughout the day. This is not something that you have to do on the cushion. But since you already have started developing a meditation practice, why don't you continue to do uh, that and then call me again. But right now we're going to add this new ingredient. Mm-hmm actually two ingredients one is we're going to start being mindful of the in-breath the long in-breath and the long out-breath that's one thing and the other is to take the effort to keep gladdening the mind to put in wholesome thoughts and to take out the unwholesome thoughts and would you um just clarify uh so the gladdening of the mind i feel like i i uh i I have you know, a, a grip on that, and, and, and I'm going to begin to do to, to try to do more of that. Could you talk just a little bit more about um, the focus on the long, you know, the breath, the, the long breath in and out? So, am I uh, actually going to? Now, you mentioned before that it, it isn't just the nat- the natural breath in and out as it sort of. Um, well, it is natural, but it's not the yeah. normal breath. In fact, we're going to take it out of normal breathing into a more natural breathing. Okay. And so does that mean I'm manipulating my breath? Like I'm deliberately breathing? You're manipulating it directly all the time. Yeah. If you didn't manipulate your breath, you'd stop breathing altogether. So let's not worry about whether this is manipulating or not. Let's talk about it. Is it going to be unconscious or subconscious manipulation of the breath? Yeah. Or is it going to be conscious manipulation of the breath? 
And so would it be skillful to sort of, um, you know, uh, just alter it? So like, you know, have some short breaths and, and be paying attention to that and then maybe do some long breaths and pay attention. I would and, say and that um, one of the techniques that has been used over time to help students is to count breaths. Yeah. In the beginning, you would have a shorter count in the sense of in on four and out on four and two between the out and the in breath. And then mm -hmm. in breath four, out breath four, and then wait two. Then you can bring that down to in on five, out on five, and rest two. Eventually, you'll get up to eight on uh, the in breath, eight on the out breath, and four. Oh, really? So eight, eight, and four is a count of 20. That means that now you're down to about three breaths a minute. And we're mm -hmm. looking for having a long, slow breath because we've got a lot of stuff to do in that whole long breath. We've got the whole Satipatthana, and I've already given you quite a lot of it mm -hmm. in the sense of guarding the mind and yeah. to uh, keep having Sati on the in-breath, Sati on the out-breath, and uh, guarding the mind, this is all part of the Anapanasati practice. And so you want to kind of get, you want to get yourself to the point where you can count to eight on the out-breath, eight on the in-breath, and then have a, a space of four seconds in between those breaths. That you want to sort of get, in the and that's sort right. of maintain that. Mm -hmm. Okay. Right. So I, and the con, unlike most places, most places think about the breathing in the sense of getting it in, getting oxygen in. The in breath's the important one. In this practice, it's the out breath. Okay, the long, deep out breath, the sigh, because it's going to be purative. We're wanting to throw out of the blood and out of the of the mechanisms whatever job that the uh, that the outbreath can do there's more than just carbon dioxide coming out and so we want to be able to not completely don't think of it completely but a middle path so a light shallow breathing would be like 40 to 60. in breath is 60 percent 40 is uh, uh the outbreath still a lot of junk in there and we're going to move this up to about uh, uh 30 70. So that we uh, we fill up, but not completely. We're not going to top off the lungs, nor are we going to try to con absolutely empty them. But rather, we're thinking more of just letting it all out or letting go. <sighs> we don't have to then keep pushing more air out. Just let it out. And then take in a long, slow, deep in-breath. This actually will oxygenate the body and help you feel tingly alive mm. to where uh, the normal breathing that people have, the shallow breathing that people have, uh, is just, let us say, um, they're bare minimum. Mm. Yeah, I definitely would say that the body. I fall into very shallow breathing. And... Uh, you know, I do count the breath, but it's it's totally different. It's just in, out, one, in, out, two, 
that right. type of thing. It's not really right. breathing. That's not what we're talking. That's not counting yeah. the breath. That uh, the way that uh, we should be counting within the breath to make sure that it's a long breath. But I wouldn't hold that this counting is um, all of that useful. Yeah. So I would say that you can do that counting just to get the breath long and easy going. Yeah. And then you can drop it once you. And then you, and then you can pay more attention to gladdening the mind. The kind of breathing that you want to, and uh, that we can also investigate the body. Start watching the breathing, watching the body, having wholesome thoughts about the breathing. This feels good. This feels nice. And and uh, any particular, does it matter where you're uh, directing your attention? You know, could it be at the nostrils? Could it be so no. I where I'm like, no, don't don't go to a particular point. That's again the idea from Western meditation. Uh, what we're looking for is to open, not to close. Right. That's why samadhi does not mean concentration. We're trying to get samadhi or an openness, or we're gathering things together as opposed to concentration is whacking things apart and getting down to the only the essence. An example of that is frozen orange juice, frozen concentrated orange juice. You probably know about it. Another product would be Tang. Yeah. Right? yeah. Do yeah. you drink frozen concentrated orange juice? How about Tang? Do you open the jar and take a spoonful and pop it right in your mouth? Mm. It's concentrated. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh, what do you do? You add the water back into it, which is a necessary ingredient. Mm. And so uh, concentrating is desamatifying it. And then mm. when we samati it, that means that we're putting all the ingredients back together. And now we've got a drink that can be drunk. Mm. And so gathering the factors together is what samati is all about. Not concentration. And so maybe having the mistakes that Western Buddhism has made is they think they give um, um, some sort of benefit to concentration. Right. But the Zen stick is proof positive that that's the wrong way of looking at it. You know about the Zen stick, a piece of um, uh, bamboo that has a slit down it? So that when you whack the two pieces together, they make a lot of noise. Mm. Okay, who gets hit with the Zen stick? Well, so it's funny you should mention yeah, that. Who gets hit with the Zen stick? So my understanding, it's a, it's the uh, meditator who has um, uh, lost their awareness. Right, he's not paying attention. Yeah. How does the Zen master know that? It's a good question. The answer is easy. And that is, is that if you if the Zen master is walking up behind you with his Zen stick and you know he's there, you're going to adjust your posture just a little bit. And if he's watching, he can see that. Mm. But if he walks up behind a student and the student makes no change at all, then that student is probably not aware that the Zen master is behind him and whack. <laughs> Okay, now that uh, guy could be 
He can be lost in jhana. He can be lost in hindrances. He can be lost in space. He can be lost in dream time. But he's not paying attention. And mm -hmm. that's the guy who gets whacked. Okay, mm -hmm. so any kind of meditation that you do that you go deep so that you're not paying attention to what's going on around you right. is not what the Buddha teaches. So an ex more expansive awareness that maybe takes in the whole body? Yes. And so that you're aware of the sensation at the nose, the, the All belly. All over the place, as though one by one as they occur. And so you can either do it systematically by scanning the way that it's taught in the, in the uh, Goenka method, or you can pick certain parts of the body and uh, just watch those. But generally, we want to be aware of, as the, uh, as the breath rises and falls, that you can feel the touch of the cloth, you can feel the body movement. There's all kinds of things happening with the body that gives rise to point number three, or step three of Anapanasati, is experiencing the whole body to, to wake it up. That, in fact, we have, when we are children, the child is very super sensitive. If he even falls down, he'll cry, little tiny cuts. I mean, they're very, very body-oriented. But as we grow up, we forget about the body almost completely. So part of Anapanasati practice is just to come back and wake the body back up again so that you can actually be here now in sensory awareness. Mm -hmm. And that deep breathing really helps. Because you can feel even the rise of the shoulders, you can feel the opening of the diaphragm, you can feel the chest um, uh, muscles move, the bones moving in and out for the breathing. You become completely aware of what the body is doing as you're breathing in and breathing out. And the important point is, is that, and you really like it. Mm. You're really satisfied with what you're doing. And so you had mentioned some percentages, but excuse me, I, I, they, they sort of slipped. So you would recommend that once you're sort of in a, a good groove with things, that you fill the lungs to about what percent? And then you, uh, did you say like? Uh, um, just a range. Yeah. The in-breath is going to be... Um, slightly more long than the normal breath yeah so the normal breathing is like 60 40 we're going to take that up to uh, 70 30 maybe uh 80 20. Mm -hmm. but we're just giving rough figures the idea is just to start breathing long deep experiencing the body and relaxing Mm -hmm. That's the big one. Mm -hmm. Step four of Anapanasati is to relax the body. Mm -hmm. Relaxation is really an important uh, quality of uh, first jhana. But we'll talk about the jhanas at a later time. Mm -hmm. Right now, I'm just trying to get you to the point to where you can start to take the practice that you have and add some stuff to it. The most important is gladdening the mind. The second most is the breathing. 
Okay. Okay. Yep. So, you're going to go practice this, huh? Yep. All right. So, so right now I have a, a, I practice twice a day. I have an okay. early morning practice of about an hour and then a, an evening practice of about an hour. So. Well, you do what you're doing now. And the next time you call, we'll start piddling with that kind of thing too. But right now we're just wanting to make some small changes. And the small change you're going to make is no more duka 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 duka. This is duka naroda. This is out of it. Come wake up and come out of it. Take those deep long breaths so that you can actually energize the body and make this practice easier, as well as helping you be in the here now. Because mm -hmm. your body is in the here now. When you're breathing, you're paying attention to the body. You're paying attention to this breath, not one that you had three months ago. This one. And so it helps we us orientate into this present moment and get us out of our past and our future. So you go practice this. Yep. And, and in a couple of three days, give me a call. Mm -hmm. And we'll continue on from there. Wonderful. Excellent, Alan. We'll yeah. see you soon. Thank you. Thank you very much. Be well. All right. We'll see you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.